William Shirley Williams was born in North Carolina way back in January of 1787. By the time he was a teenager, the family had settled near St. Louis, and during the War of 1812, Williams served as a scout for the all-volunteer rangers. And although he did learn to trap fur at a very early age, it was not the pursuit of beaver that first enticed Williams west to the mountains. Believe it or not, instead of collecting pelts, Bill was out there harvesting souls for the Lord. Yep. Old Bill Williams was a Methodist preacher long before he became a famous mountain man. His missionary work soon led him to live with the Osage people, and while he did succeed in translating the Bible into the Osage language and helped them negotiate a treaty with the U.S. government, it was they who ultimately converted him. Williams married into the tribe, but when his beloved passed away, he headed deep into the Rockies, becoming perhaps the most independent creature to ever walk God's green earth, the Free Trapper. Not that Bill stopped preaching, mind you. He still delivered many a sermon to his fellow mountain men around the campfire of an evening. Only these lectures were peppered with more of a colorful language than you might hear from a pulpit come Sunday morning. Old Solitaire, they called him, on account of his preferring to ride the high lonesome all on his lonesome. Williams didn't necessarily hate his fellow man, but you know how it goes. We all need a little alone time, right? And it does seem that Bill needed more than the average man. Williams was a colorful character, to say the least. He was a noted horse thief, for one, often riding to California and herding stolen steeds all the way back to the Rockies and selling them to his native friends. The man rode with Jed Smith, Kit Carson, and Joseph Walker and scouted for the likes of Bonneville and Vermont. Zebulon Pike described Bill as about six foot one, gaunt, red-headed with a hard, weather-beaten face, marked deeply with smallpox, a shrewd, acute, original man, and far from illiterate the bravest and most fearless mountaineer of them all. Of course, it weren't all praise. After all, rumor has it that old Solitaire did resort to cannibalism on occasion, and Bill Sublett said he'd never like to get in front of him in starving times. Now, I don't know about all that, but I'm pretty sure if I were a greenhorn on my first journey to the Great Plains, I could do a hell of a lot worse as far as mentors go than Bill Williams. Perhaps that's why William Hamilton fared so well and kept his scalp for so long. Old Bill might have been salty, but he damn sure knew a thing or two about staying alive in hostile territory. And as you'll soon hear, this was a lesson young Hamilton would have to catch on to rather quickly. Then again, nobody's luck lasts forever, right? And just seven years after the events we're discussing in my 60 years on the plains, old Bill Williams' role would indeed be called up yonder, minus a scalp lock. And he'd lose his life, and said scalp, at the hands of one of his adopted people, the Utes. But that's a different story for a different day. On the last installment, we discussed young Hamilton joining his Cheyenne friends on a buffalo hunt. And on today's journey, we'll follow along as he helps the Lakota take revenge on a bunch of Pawnee horse thieves. My name's Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. It was the intention of Williams to strike for the South Platte River and the vicinity of Laramie River, where he expected to meet with fur buyers, who would be returning to Green River, and either dispose of our furs or have them forwarded to St. Louis, which at that time was the principal fur buying city in the United States. A few days' travel brought us to the South Platte River, and at a point 15 miles east of the Laramie River, we found a Sioux village. Big Thunder was the chief, and he requested us to camp as his people wanted to trade. The Sioux were friendly in those days, especially to traders and trappers, and we had a royal time. 
just before daylight the following morning, an alarm was given in the village, and all the men hurried out to find that the Pawnees, mortal enemies of the Sioux, had run off about 100 head of ponies, which had been turned out to graze a short distance from camp. The number included two mules and three ponies belonging to our outfit. As soon as the news was received, 50 young warriors hastened to saddle their best ponies. Williams signified his intention of going, but I told him that he was too old, and that Noble and myself would go and bring back the stock. We started with the Indians, under the leadership of Young Thunder, a fine specimen of a coming chief. I rode my pony, Runner. We soon struck the trail of the Pawnees and followed it down the south side about 10 miles, and then crossed the north side of the river. We could tell by the appearance of the trail that they were only a short distance ahead of us. The Sioux now discarded all their clothing except for leggings and breechcloths and mounted their war horses, which had up to this point been led. I put a pad on my runner. These pads were made by filling two sacks with antelope hair. The sacks are generally made of buckskin or seven or eight inches in diameter and rest on each side of the horse's backbone, being sewed together on top with buckskin. Material is fastened to each side for stirrups and cinch. They would be a curiosity in the east, but are light and elastic, and a horse feels no inconvenience from them and can travel 20 miles farther in a day than under a saddle. We started at a canter, young thunder in the lead. After going about eight miles, we noticed that sand was still sliding in the hoof tracks ahead. This was a sure indication that the Pawnees were but a short distance in advance. We now went at about half speed, the Indians becoming alert. Passing over a divide, we could plainly see a cloud of dust about two miles in advance. At about that same time, the Pawnees must have discovered us, for there appeared a scattering just as if stock was being urged to a greater speed. We gained rapidly on the Pawnees and were soon close enough to determine that the party consisted of twelve. They were trying their best to get the herd to a cottonwood grove on a bend of the Platte River. It was at this time that I discovered the wonderful endurance of the Indian pony. Young Thunder gave a war whoop, which was the signal for a charge. The ponies bounded forward as an engine when the throttle was thrown wide open. The Pawnees heard the yell and left the herd of stolen stock and made for the grove, frantically urging their ponies to greater speed. Two of them went to sleep before they reached cover, ten getting safely to the grove thankful of saving their lives, knowing that the Sioux would be satisfied with the two scalps and the recaptured herd. Several of the ponies were close to the grove, and Noble and I dashed in at full speed and turned them away. The Pawnees fired several shots at us, but the bullets went wide of their mark. When we returned to our party, they had the two Pawnees stripped and scalped. I asked the Sioux if they did not intend to charge the Pawnees in the grove. Young Thunder, who had been a close observer of our actions in recovering the ponies, smiled and shook us by the hand. It is a question in my mind if the Sioux would have recovered those ponies but for us. They will not approach a solid body of timber with a heavy growth of underbrush. I thought then that the Indians were not such terrible fighters as some riders made them appear, and my first impressions had never changed, although I have contended against some who apparently knew no fear, but they are exceptions. We reached the village in due season, Young Thunder leading the party, the warriors following singing scalp songs and carrying the Pawnee scalps tied on the end of coup sticks. The whole village turned out to greet us, and were all yelling like furies. They could tell by the song of the warriors that no loss nor damage had been sustained, which is not always the case. Pandemonium reigned all night, with singing and dancing and the recounting of the warriors' bravery and taking two scalps and recapturing the ponies stolen by those dogs of Pawnees. 
When Williams heard of my going close to the timber, he said, I shall have to keep you at home next time if I expect to return you to your parents. You are a young fool to approach close to the timber where hostile Indians are concealed. I told Williams that three of our ponies were in the bunch and that I did not want to return without them. I thought the Sioux were cowards, but I have learned by experience since that a white man, on the plains at least, will risk where an Indian dreads. The Pawnees had not acted with good judgment in trying to drive off a hundred head of horses so near daylight. They should have realized that the Sioux would be on their trail in a short while, mounted on their best horses. Indians are credited with being extraordinarily cunning in stealing horses, the Pawnees especially so, which is the reason other tribes call them wolf Indians. The sign for wolf is the index finger and thumb spread apart, other three fingers end to palm, the hand held up to the side of the head. This is the uniform sign for both wolf and for Pawnee. I have made mention of coup sticks. While all tribes do not call it by the name coup, the custom and usages are all identical. These sticks are generally made of willow and are from 7 to 10 feet in length and 1 inch in diameter. The bark is peeled and they are painted with vermilion, after the fashion of barber's poles. Warriors invariably carry these sticks in action, and when a foe falls, the one who strikes him with a stick claims the coup, or one brave action done. A brave's valor is determined by the number of coups he has to his credit. Sometimes a half a dozen Indians strike the same foe and each one claims a coup and is entitled to and gets part of the scalp. We started the next day for the Laramie River, where we expected to visit another Sioux village whose chief was Black Moon. Also to meet some traders from Green River, men representing the Northwest Territory Company, and some opposition traders. There existed a great rivalry among them to secure furs and robes from free trappers, as our outfit was classed. Corporate companies were not friendly to free traders and trappers and made it very unpleasant for them when opportunity offered. In those days, the cream of men in the mountains belonged to the free traders and trappers, and it followed that corporations had no walk away, as Mountain Phrase had it. The Sioux were very wealthy from an Indian standpoint, owning vast numbers of horses and mules and furs and robes, and they were generally considered nabobs. They roamed the plains with their villages so as to be in close proximity to the buffalo, of which they required large numbers, as meat was their principal food, and sent out war parties against their enemies, who were numerous and included Pawnees, Crows, Utes, and Iowas. So it followed that they kept constantly on the go, and for recreation, when a war party had returned from a successful raid, bringing back scalps and ponies, all women related to the party would decorate themselves in all their barbaric finery and promenade through the village singing and chanting the bravery of their lovers and husbands, and making all the other women in the village feel abashed. This is the secret spring of war parties constantly going out. The singing, dancing, and feasting are continued several nights and days. Very different are the conditions when war parties return defeated. A gloom is cast over the village. Relatives of those who are slain or are missing cut off fingers and in other ways mutilate themselves and a council is held by the medicine men to devise some plan by which they may get revenge on the enemy. Bear in mind, and this is true of all tribes, notwithstanding contrary statements made by some writers who have no general knowledge of the character of the Indian, either on the plains or in the mountains, an Indian never for a moment considers himself the aggressor. Sufficient for him is the fact that some member of the village has been lost. We reached Black Moon's village on the Laramie River the next day camping near the chief's lodge. The story of our recovering the stock and the taking of two Pawnee scalps had preceded us, 
and the young warriors wanted to see the young pale face who had ridden close to the grove. They looked upon that as a great feat, though I had failed to see it in any such light. As it was, it made me many friends among the young men. The older ones, however, said that I was a young fool who would lose my scalp some day. We traded for considerable fur at this camp, which somewhat astonished Williams, as there were three traders on the Platte River. The reason was, as I have already stated, that the traders were not up to their business in such ways as paying uniform prices for furs of the same quality. A war party of young men came into camp that night from the Sweetwater River and informed us that a trader with wagons would be along the next day. The next morning, we unpacked all our furs, classifying and rebelling them. Williams took great pains to instruct me in all this, saying that he intended to make me the equal of anyone in the business, as it might be useful in later years. I often think that he had a presentiment that I would never return to civilization. In the afternoon, an old trader named Vasquez arrived with wagons and oxens and was astonished to see all the furs we had collected. He looked surly, but this did not worry Williams, who understood his disposition. Williams should have been engaged by the government as a diplomat, for he could outwit any and all of these arrogant corporate traders. At any rate, Vasquez saw that his only chance to get furs and robes was to curb his temper and come to terms, which he did, paying us $750 in cash for beaver and other small furs, and a quantity of Indian goods, of which he had a fine assortment for the robes. Williams got the best of him on every turn. He either had to trade with us or haul his Indian goods back to the States, which he was not inclined to do. When departing the next day, Vasquez said he would make this business a free trade and most interesting for all concerned. I admired Williams' reply, which was, Good, Mr. Vasquez. Remember, I will be on hand to take an active part in the matter when it occurs. We now had 14 pack horses, loaded with a fine assortment of Indian goods, and moved up the Platte River to the mouth of the Sweetwater. While making camp, six young Arapahoes put in an appearance and told us their village was a short distance up the Platte River. It consisted of 100 lodges, with Yellow Bear as chief. This was Old Yellow Bear, father of the one killed on Sand Creek by Colonel Chivington. Williams rode back with the Indians to their village. His object was to have the Indians bring their robes and furs to our camp, as we intended making a long detour before reaching Green River. Yellow Bear and his son returned with him to inspect our goods and, being satisfied, returned to the village. We stood guard that night as we were in country dangerous from outside war parties. The next morning, the village arrived early. They were wild-looking Indians and not to be trusted. They were a thieving outfit, as the whites found out in after years. Trade opened at once, and by noon we had 100 robes and a quantity of other furs. Then came a feast and a smoke with the chiefs, after which they all returned to their village. We hurried in packing up, for Williams wanted to reach the Independence Rock crossing of the Sweetwater as soon as possible. He was in hope of meeting another wagon outfit that might be coming from Green River and to which we might dispose of our furs. We reached the crossing the next day at noon, but found only Vasquez's wagon trail. It was while at this camp that I had my first introduction to Crow Indians, when Williams halted a war party, or more properly speaking, a thieving party of 23, within 50 yards of camp. We had all our packs placed in the square, the robes making a fine breastwork. The Crows were very insolent and came very near bringing on a fight. In the first place, they wanted a feast, then our best horses, given in exchange poor ones. They also demanded blankets and furs, all of which Williams gave them to understand they could not have. They next wanted to examine our outfit and trade, but Williams knew that they had nothing to trade and he told them so, and also advised them to leave. At this, they became more insulting. 
We had two large shotguns, which we used on guard at night, as they were most effective weapons at close range, being loaded with half-ounce ball and five buckshot. One tall Indian, diabolically painted, stepped towards where I was standing, and I brought my gun to bear upon him. At this, he said, Mastushera Momo Naka, and retreated. Perkins told me that meant white man fool. Finally, the crows asked for some tobacco, which Williams gave them with the understanding that they were to leave at once, and they did, casting in sign to us mean white men, all of which I understood. I felt very much like resenting, but was restrained by Williams, who said that I must not heed such things from Indians. After many years of experience, I fully agree with him. We remained in this camp two days and then started for the Upper Wind River country hoping to meet the Shoshones who frequently remained in that section until May, fur still being in their prime. It is amusing to hear men from the East claim that beaver and otter are only trapped in the winter. Such is not the case, as beaver and otter trapped in April and May are classed A1. I have sold to expert fur buyers furs trapped in June, and these same buyers credited themselves with being able to tell, by the appearance of the fur, in just what month in the year the furs were trapped. On our third day's travel, we met a trader from Pomeroy, who had Indian goods on hand expected to trade with the Indians on the trip to the States. Williams told him that all the Indians he would be liable to me were without furs, which was stretching it somewhat. We then unpacked our furs and robes and offered to trade for cash or goods. It required half a day to consummate the trade, we receiving $300 in cash and a quantity of Indian goods. Williams told me afterwards that Pomeroy would not make much on that trade. I think that Williams must have hypnotized Pomeroy as he overlooked the important fact that at this season of the year, Indians were still dressing in robes and would continue to do so for six weeks to come. And Pomeroy would have plenty of opportunities to trade with villages on his way down Platte River. But Williams made him believe that the villages were leaving for Buffalo, which was not so, as they had an abundance of meat and Buffalo were close by. Williams was the soul of honor, and when I questioned him about these statements to Pomeroy, he smiled and said, Diplomacy. I have never forgotten that, and after years of observation, I find that honorable merchants follow the same tactics. Self-interest predominates among all, from the highest to the lowest. They evade the literal truth, calling their conduct business diplomacy. Diplomacy.